Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and the um, eternal security of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, the topic has been um, loss. You guys have already heard this. So again, it's still really awkward. Um, Clayton's not heard it, so I'll, I'll deliver it there. Uh, the topic was, really, was, was loss, and, and what I was playing around with, um, and really it started out as just kind of playing around with an idea, and it, right around the time I got asked to do this, it all kind of coalesced together, which worked out really well. The idea that we have put faith in something that ultimately failed us. And what I meant with that was loss that originated in failure, and it was failure of effort, failure of accomplishments, failure of ideas, um, failure of values even, um, failure of promises that, that, we had, that other people had made, failures of, um, of our status, of, of anything that we had participated in and identified with that we thought would sustain us. And, and pushing beyond that in a couple of ways, it could be a failure of something that we thought would help us achieve a goal. Um, in that respect, uh, I had some mildly, very mildly sympathetic words for, for Occupy Wall Street, which is something I wouldn't normally sympathize with, except that I can, I can relate uh, intellectually and emotionally with people who've, who've been told, do step one, step two, step three, mix in some hard work, and at the end of that, you'll have six-figure job or financial security or something like that, and, and it didn't work. And um, while it's easy and probably deservedly to, to mock uh, those people like, well, I majored in, you know, puppetry and I can't get a job. You know, that it, it's easy to kind of put fun at that. You, you do sympathize with those people who thought, well, I worked really hard and I got a, you know, a liberal arts degree at you know such and such college, and I you know had these great you know ACT, SAT scores, and I had a great GRE, and I got into grad school, and there's no job, or my job is managing Starbucks. And you know, they had trusted in a prescription for success that they had every reason to believe would work, and it, it kind of collapsed on them. Um, I'd looked a little bit at um, at war, both the, uh, the the American Civil War and the English experience, in particular with World War One, um, where there were a, a set of ideals that on a day-to-day basis defined who you were as a Southerner or as an Englishman. And it wasn't that those things necessarily meant success, but they just meant the creation of a good society. But in the back of your mind, you knew that if your society was ever put to the test, you would come out on, you, you would come out on the winning side because of those ideals and because of those values. It's not that they brought you success you know, on a random Tuesday in, you know, 1911 or 1852, but that you know, when the war drums began to beat, that what you carried with you in the battle, uh, emotionally, physically, intellectually, would be strong enough to bring you out on the other side. And, and it turned out that, that sometimes that just doesn't work, that it, it helped to a degree, but that due to things com- you know, maybe completely beyond your control or to something else in your control that you let slip, 
that, that those ideals ultimately failed, and, and it, left, it left people in a real quandary, uh, you know, not sure where to turn, what to do next. I, I didn't bring the book with me, but I know the passage pretty well. Um, there was a passage in, in Tim Keller's first book, and I did read this last week, where he, he talks about counseling a couple of women, both of whom had different circumstances that they were, I'm sorry, had the same circumstance they were dealing with. They had a kind of an absentee, aloof husband who probably spent too much time, uh, you know, hunting, fishing, watching football, or, or fixing his car, or whatever, uh, and sons that were starting to get in trouble uh, at school, starting to get in legal trouble. And they were both having a really, really hard time with this. And one woman was able to kind of forgive her husband for his issues and was able to kind of start rebuilding the family. The other woman, who probably appeared to have it together a bit more, maybe outwardly you could look at her and, and stereotype her as someone who had, her, had everything going right, and, and was in some ways a little bit more of a model citizen than the, the, the other woman, she was having a really hard time, and she finally admits to Keller in, in his book that, that she, she breaks down and says, if this fails, I don't have anything else left because if my kid fails and my marriage fails, then I've failed. And so she was really hung up in that. And so I think those are kind of some examples of where I was going with that. So as a lead-in and kind of to, to recap, any thoughts on that? Anything could flesh out better? He looked thoughtful, so I don't know. Okay. Um, well, to go with that, the scripture text was Philippians 3, and I've been focusing on the first 11 verses, but I'm going to pull up all of them, and it's just 20, so I'm going to read the whole thing. So Philippians 3, Paul's letter to Philippians, um, here we go, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do, not consider that I, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we obtain. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory on their shame, glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So what you've got in Paul is a guy who, prior to his conversion, has placed enormous confidence in his um, ethnicity and the family into which he was born into his um, intellectual and spiritual standing as a model Jewish scholar and, 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 uh, and teacher and finds that um, by comparison to the gospel those things are, are in fact worthless. And so he he sets up kind of a standard or in what in philosophical terms you'd call a dialectic between his accomplishments in Christ and there's this kind of back and forth there and and ultimately every, he, he, he acknowledges um, that that what he had had is comes out on the losing end that if if you're keeping score that um, to reference Mark Golly's book that God wins uh, and in that sense the gospel wins and everything else loses um, which is ultimately good news because those other things, um, however valuable they might be, and I don't think we should, I don't think we should deconstruct this to the point that we say that all those other things are worthless on a day-to-day basis, that they have no significance in our own lives. I mean, we, Lori and I, are, um, I've said this before, big fans of the show Friday Night Lights. There's an episode where where two teams are arguing over where to play a game, and kind of the, the district commissioner for athletics is saying, "Gentlemen, let's remember this is just a game." And the main character um, speaks up and says, "Don't patronize me and tell me this is just a game. This is what I do for a living." And and so I, I don't want to I don't want to deconstruct it to the point that we just say this is all um, meaningless uh, in the short term. In the long term, though, we have to say, uh, as as we say at Ash Wednesday, that this is all dust, um, and that you know, compared to the the illuminating light of the gospel, we have to acknowledge that this this is a losing proposition in the long view, or what the French would call the long durée of history, that, that these things are eventually going to burn out. Um, and so having everything in that focus, I think, is, is ultimately going to be very, very helpful. Um, and so where I've wanted to, to kind of push all of this is to note that, that all the things that we, we get caught up in, and I'm going to go to a couple of specific examples in a minute, all of these things that we get caught up in are ultimately forms of identity ways in which we desire to construct meaning for ourselves by uh, attaching ourselves to something that is pre-existing, some tribe, some group, some organization that allows us to to feel that we belong um, by creating for ourselves some own little code or world um, that that gives us some sort of meaning. you know, we, we talk a lot, um, and Gil's talked about this a lot, about you know, people who say, well, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. Um, what that ultimately means is they are incredibly religious because they're devising religion of their own making, which says I want to have my own system of, 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 of worship and rituals and that sort of thing. And so we're, we're prone to do that. Um, John Calvin famously and deeply said that our hearts are idol-making factories, so we, that we can't help but construct Things, uh, what, what we would uh, um, say at their root are idols, something that 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 we worship, um, and so we're naturally going to do this. And so, um, in that sense, there's there's no shame in in, in in revealing that because it is something that's common to all of us. 
Uh, now, in light, again, thinking towards Easter, in light of the, the gospel, there's there's great shame in that. I mean, we we pray, um, you know, in in the uh, in our in our confession, we pray for forgiveness for the things we've done and left undone, and and and, and that sort of thing. And so there's there's an issue there, um, but the the problem of identity as it relates to failure is that what we find is that all of the little gods that we have either created for ourselves or to which we've attached ourselves. Um, maybe gods that other people have already created that we rush to join in with. Um, a lot of people's brackets were busted this weekend. I mean, you know, if you were a serious fan of, of the school, and we were talking about this before we got started, I mean, you know, there's, there's a series of, a, a sense of deep disappointment there, um, which is only natural when you, when you get your emotions up, but those people who are going to spend the next two or three weeks um, bemoaning the fact that their team lost in the first round, um, that is a little god that has, in some sense, failed them. Um, you know, as an Alabama fan, I'm, you know, I think the referee failed me in the last two seconds. You know, um, you know, um, you know, somebody else is going to say, "Well, no, your your point guard failed you, or whatever." In any event, I mean, there's, you know, there it, there's there's hope that I'd placed even momentarily um, for happiness in a bunch of a bunch of basketball players, you know, playing ball in Greensboro on on Friday afternoon, and. And that's 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 kind of where where I wanted to angle in terms of um, we identify with things that 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 do in fact fail us, and so there's that's where kind of the disconnect uh, lies. So as a lead-in among the four of us, any any thoughts or? It seems that without knowing it, we're creating an identity based on that failure and then kind of or at least shifting back and forth between the um, identity that relates more to success. I mean, it's more complex than that than one to failure. And then right. Just based on how things go, like on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Right. I think it's interesting how we can especially when it relates to sports, and I didn't even mean to bring that up, it just kind of came to me. You see where my, where my, my, my mind is. Um, but you could, you, you could almost look in the way, depending on what team you follow, um, and even, I think it's even more to the point if it's something you follow based on family history. You know, my family's attended that school for five generations, or we've lived in such and such city for all these years. The way in which you eternalize, not eternalize, in Freudian slip, I guess, internalize failure or success. I mean, if you're a Yankees fan, if, if you're, a, you know, a you know, basketball at Duke or a Carolina fan or, a, you know, an Alabama fan in football, you know, there's, a, there's a sense of internalizing success and expectation. If you're a fan of other schools that maybe struggle a little bit more, you internalize failure or collapse or, you know, perhaps, an, you know, maybe an ability. I don't, I don't, I don't want to say that one's better than the other, but there, there are tendencies there that you can kind of, um, kind of put inside yourself, um, which I think is really interesting. Fan fan. Yeah, a little bit. Or I think you know the great struggle for Alabama fans. I think there's so many Alabama football fans who don't know enough about basketball that they bring the same expectations, you know, to the basketball team. Um, I mean, I'm listening to the radio after the loss Friday afternoon, and these people are calling in and thinking, this is not a football game. I mean. The loss is completely different, and, and whatever frustration you feel, you can't treat this as though we just blew, you know, a national championship game, or we just lost to Auburn because of you know something stupid. It's not in any way the same thing. Um, 
But I, yeah, go ahead. You guys are saying that the, so the failures are more defining than the successes. Either or, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in professional sports. What your expectations are, maybe. Right. I mean, professionally, me look, I mean, look at Cubs fans. I mean, there's a whole culture there that exists, you know, based on being kind of lovable losers. Um, or this is this is our year. It's not been your year for a hundred and you know so many years. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, um, but I mean I, I think that's kind of an example. Uh, but I think uh, well, and, you know, personally, I just feel like like a lot of times I'll forget about success quickly, but then the failures stick with me. You know, yeah. Where it's like you know, and, I, and what you're talking about the Alabama, you know, it's like when they win the national championship, it's like well good, that's what they're supposed to do. Right. And, you know, next year, what will we get? You know, right. it's not like a celebration sort of thing. It's like, you know, it's, it's just a, a something else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's exactly right. Yeah. And maybe maybe this is, you know, it's something about how I am as a fan and as a, as a graduate, but I mean, I'm incredibly excited by that stuff, but three weeks later, it it doesn't fulfill me, but the losses three weeks later still null. You know, I, I, I can still, every time I mention that, I can replay, you know, sitting in the upper deck during the loss to Auburn two years ago. And there's like three or four plays that just, you know, my view on about the 20 yard line in the upper deck looking in this direction or looking straight ahead and seeing that touchdown or that fumble or this or that. And, you know, those can kind of rewind. Whereas, you know, you get the same, the, the same incomplete feeling sometimes with success that you get, like, like at Christmas, almost, where it's like, okay, Christmas, this was great. And it's like, oh, back to work. When you're trying to hold up an identity of success, and it's more about maintaining that identity of success and not letting anything creep through, and so it's more, it's, it's kind of a relief for the, to be success, to have success, but then it's not great joy, it's just kind of... Yeah. yeah. Relief from not failing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, actually, it was in Moneyball. There was a line, and Caroline like paused yeah. the movie, and she was like, "That's exactly right." The guy said, "Look, it's not that I like winning; it's that I hate losing." Yeah. yeah. And it's like <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like things when you realize it's it's, it's like spite or whatever. Right. It is. Coach Bryant had that famous quote, you know, winning's not every, was, was it Bryant or Vince Lombardi? I should know this. Winning's not everything, but it sure beats coming in second. That's, I mean, one of them, I, I want to say it was Coach Bryant, but. Lombardi, uh, maybe? I think, I th- you know, it may have been Lombardi, but, I mean, that's, there's a lot there. Um, because it, it is hard to, to derive any kind of, you know, sincere joy out of it. Um, but knowing that you're not failing. Um, I mean, and to put that in theological terms, to know that you are at least temporarily justified is is deeply significant. Um, the problem is you've got to find a new way to justify yourself. So, you know. You right. It's really like when, when you first start talking, it's like you're like, uh, you know, when something, some sort of professional disappointment or something like that, like, how can I, like, distract myself from that? Right. Because it's not really that important except to me. Right. And so it's, you know, how can I sort of objectively look at it? Right. And really what that means is just push it to the periphery and try to focus on, you know, the stuff that's actually happening every day. Right. That's incredibly difficult.
Man, I'll, I'll say this about sports, and we can we can move on. I mean, there's been people who, who psychologized Southern football, and you could probably you know, honestly you could probably say the same thing to a point about basketball, even in the Carolinas and Kentucky, given the, the demographics, that everything else in the South was so bad from about 1900 to 1970. Either the economy was terrible and farms were failing in the early part, or then by the 50s and the 60s, I mean the South is, you know terribly mishandling civil rights. I mean, there are these abuses, and even when there's attempts to fix it, they're just bumbling their way through and struggling, and the rest of the countries I'm like, turn on the TV at night like, what? And then, you know, if you're in Alabama or Georgia or even, even Mississippi once upon a time could say, well, you know what, at least our football team beat yours on Saturday. So how do you like them apples? And that there's some, psych psychologically, there's some kind of sense of, of confidence there, um, which... I think it's probably hard to deny, and I hate to over to, to over analyze something that's really as simple as, as a ball game. But there's probably something there in the sense that you know we've got to justify we've got to justify ourselves some way, um, and that's that's that isn't that's a natural tendency. Um, I think two two things I've, I noticed with in relation to identity. Um, one, as we talked about, is that we are in, in our desire to to measure up, we're desperate to fit in. And so there is um, a, a very serious tendency on our part as human beings to um, find a place where we can come out equal, where we feel that the scales have been leveled off and we're no longer found lacking. Um, I think it's especially true in Western culture where um, ethnic identity is broken down um, there's, there's a hashtag on Twitter um, you see sometimes it says white people problems where, um, you know, which is, 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 I think, funny and sometimes um, true and sometimes a little bit demeaning. Um, but, you know, it, 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 for people who really have lost any kind of like ethnic ties, especially, or um, maybe even um, people who have lost maybe any kind of religious identity, you know, you're, you're struggling to find your way and say, well, I, I've got to find a coffee shop that really fits me, or I've got to find uh, a bar to hang out in that really fits me, or I've got to, you know, I've got to dress this way, or you know, and, and I mean, you know, guilty as charged, you know. I mean, it's something we all deal with, I deal with, um, um, and, and so all of that. On you know, yeah, I mean, you you want to, you know, you want to just enjoy yourself, but there's there's a tendency to to, to find that you are no longer. Um, Well, no, it's... But, like, that's, you know, not a small way. I've, I've, I've never really thought about identifying, placing so much identity in a, something as uh, almost silly as a, as a coffee shop or a... Right. Or, or a well, you don't want to deconstruct it and, to, and, 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 and totally rip it apart. But on the other hand, I mean, yeah, because... Yeah. If you walk in a place and it's full of, you know, regardless of if, if it's 75% stuff you like and the other 25% you're like, you're kind of looking around, looking around at all the other people or there's something about the, de the decor or there's something about the setting that you just 
bristle at? I mean, you feel that either that's inadequate to you or you're inadequate to it. And somehow the scales aren't, I mean, if you're keeping score, somebody's, Say more about this. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the obvious elephant in the room would be. I mean, I think a lot of my friends and people that I, I talk with on a daily basis would be completely intimidated to come to, to church here um, just because of, of its structure, one, and then two, right. the way people dress, and three, you know, the, the, we use a choir and we have organ instead of a guitar, and um, it's, it's not matching to their identity so they're not gonna they're not gonna come they're not gonna put themselves out of their mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. initial comfort zone to, to come because it's it doesn't in any way match their identity except for maybe the one light of you know that they might hear the gospel <coughs> well but, but I think that there's some in some situations they'll look at that and say like well that's because they feel empowered by their presence yeah. right and then, yeah. another, and, and then and then another you know same mind, different situation, they would feel inadequate. Right. So, I mean, there's a, there's a pride or a yeah. embarrassment. I mean, I'm not um, in any way justifying um, right. that. Right. Yeah, and it, it happens the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the, the critical, I think, the uh, oh, I no, say, go, the, the, jump like, on I it. I was at home and I was watching, you know, something on TV. Swamp people or something, you know, and and um, and completely happy, you know, and um, just I was like catching all the Twitter or whatever, and it was just people kind of complaining or or just you know a lot of times I I have to tell myself like no more phone, like it's just too much negativity and it's too much like people complaining and pointing out like. Um, empowering, you know, like, complaining about where they are and making fun of the people there. Right. Because they're, you know, just pointing out how they're different and Mm -hmm. something like that. And it just is, you know, I think it's funny a little bit, but then it's, like, actually, like, sarcasm and snarky stuff, like, it's actually, like, um, you know, the opposite is actually true, and it's it's just negative. Right. So it's, um... I noticed a lot of that Tuesday night after the primary results started rolling in (coughs) on on Facebook, which was like, you know what? And, and, and it was oftentimes in the, in the initial stuff I agreed with, like, you know what, I get it. You don't like so-and-so who maybe won a primary or came close to winning a primary. Or what, but what you're saying, saying says more about you than it does about them. And I think we all go through different phases where we're right. the person, you know. Yeah. Uh, right. With that idea. Uh, so what I mean, like, what do we... Well, what I was going to say to what, to what you guys were saying about, about churches, I think the theological mistake that churches have made, and, and I, I don't want to feel, I don't want to say theologically that we ought to wear ties or we ought to do this or that, but I think the theological mistake that churches have made the last 30 years, moving away from what they were doing traditionally, is it assumed that the complaint, the identity issue on the part of people who were uncomfortable coming in the door, it assumed that that was in no way rooted in their own sinfulness. And I don't want to blame the, I don't mean blaming the victim, but it assumed that it was a completely innocent, you know, like one of our kids, two, three years old, saying, I don't like this. 
Well, that's, that's fine. You know, Jack says, I don't like that chicken. As long as he doesn't, like, take it out of his mouth and throw it on the floor, which is what he's going to do nine times out of ten, that's fine. But if we, the, the, the problem is, is, is in assuming that there's not a, there's not a, that all of our issues aren't in some way marked by our own need for self-justification. In that what, what's said in the, well, I don't like the organ or I don't like the rock and roll praise band at some other church down the street, that that is in some ways not, you know, if, if, if I were to say about another, you know, another, another situation, well, I don't like the fact that the preacher wears a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops or that the music is by, you know, uh, you know a bad James Taylor ripoff, that that's completely objective coming from me because it's, it's not. I'd like to think it is. I'd like to really pat myself on the back. Well, of course. And the truth is, I, I might could could dig through some you know, theological text and find some justification for why we ought not be so modern in how we do church. I actually think that's pro- there's probably some validity to that. Um, but on the flip side, I'm absolutely bringing baggage to that that says I don't like that and I don't feel comfortable in that and I feel more comfortable wearing a coat and tie and this and that and the other. And so, you know, there's been a fail. I think there's a, you know, it, I think it's interesting that people who have wholesale switched have oftentimes not done it successfully because they've assumed that when people have said, oh, I'd, I'd much rather us do a 180, that that was just an, that was as innocent as a two-year-old saying, I'd rather have Chick-fil-A instead of pizza. So we can, we can theologically justify, or perhaps can theologically justify, or I think we can the way we do things here, but our attachment is, our personal attachment is probably more identity driven than than theological justification. Like if I want, I would have a very hard time going to a church that had a Hawaiian shirt um, preacher and just completely casual music um, or in the casual presentation and some of that might a small part of that might be my theological voice and more, more of it is probably just the identity of right. this is what I like and identify with um, one of the things that's changed in my life recently is that I don't teach anymore um, and, and kind of to get what we're talking about is one of the lectures I used to talk about was about aesthetics and trying to explain that to people that's kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. Is like your preferences, you know, you know, would you rather have a Subaru Outback or a Corvette is kind of one of the questions that I would ask at the beginning of that lecture. You know, right. it's like, and of course, you know, people will understand that they're totally loaded. Right. The choices, you know. Right. But, you know, it sounds like, you know, and getting back to the policy, you know, that that's just, you know, uh, eventually becomes irrelevant. Right. Yeah, yeah and I, I would think even where you make theological judgments, and I think you can, or like I really do in terms of, you know, I mean, you, and there are people who've spent their lives to this, that, you know, theologically, Bach is superior to, even though it's a different style of music, superior to Miles Davis. Um, structurally and in terms of what that represents about truth and that sort of thing. And I think you can make those arguments. And in the main, I agree with them. I, I really do. But again, there is, at some level, my head and my heart are imperfect and are, you know, have that little, you know, 
id that is is pushing the train or at least participating. You know, if there's a committee driving the train, it's at the table. And it's just always me, 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 me. And even if the other, you know, it's a committee of 12, if the other 11 are totally driven, you know, by, you know, everything that, you know, later in Philippians where Paul says to meditate on things that are good and true and pure, you know, the, the other members of the committee can be all of those things, but then there's that one little part of me that's just, you know, flashing a light saying me, 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 me. And so even if I'm making this great argument in favor of something, there's a little part of it that's always going to be going to be ego driven. So, I mean, with you know, now, I mean, do we have a, wow. an, I know, like, seriously, how do we <laughs> go home and be inevitable or not apply? Awful, but how do I mean to 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 make everyday decisions to to want to be successful to provide for your family to not be, I mean, you know, like, there's this, I know there's a tension, but how do you want to do all these great things for your family, and am I making sense? Yeah, well, I mean, how do you, I mean. What do you do is you're displacing it to your family. You're identifying as saying, like, you know, like, well, I'm not really doing it. Me, I'm doing it to save my kids. Because I catch myself doing that all the time. You know, where it's like, you know, right. I, I mean, I'm actually, it's okay that I'm doing this because it's going to pay off for them, you know, sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it's, well, yeah, it's, so how it's do hard you, to be conscious of it all. Yeah, how do you keep going and not, like, ball up in a little, you know, in the corner and just let the days, let the sunrise, let the sunset, let the sunrise, let the sunset. How do you... You mean I can't? I can't curl up into a little ball and, and just... Man, that's what I was going to do during spring break. Um, well, I mean, the, the thing there, I mean, that's that's where a... At least in Protestant context, and here I'm holding a copy of the Protestant face of Anglicanism, so a nice little tie-in. I think, at least, certainly in a Protestant context, that's where your ecclesiology or your view of church um, or your view of the scripture comes in, in the sense that, you know, you come to church every Sunday and you confess your sins and you acknowledge that. Um, I think we, this may be the confession. I mean, in morning prayer, where we say we've not loved. We, you know, we pray that you know, God, we have not loved you with our whole hearts. I mean, not to say that we don't can't do those things the other six days in our own lives, but I mean, when you kneel in the in the pew right there and you pray that, and you you you, I mean, there's something even you know, Eucharistic in that from a communion standpoint that when you are confronted with the gospel and you confess your sins out loud, I mean, that's right there. Um, I'm saying that now, I mean, you know me better than anybody else in the world, that that's, that's not me most days. I'm, you know, most days completely consumed with all of this. But I think, you know, at least on paper anyway, that much is true. Uh, I'm going to borrow briefly, we don't have much time, borrow briefly from, yeah, go, j- jump in. I was in the Gill's cartoon where, like, it's the happy Jesus with the coffee mug, and he looks at the end and says, well, if you knew the truth, you'd be balled up in the corner with a jack <laughs> Right. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should not take, I don't remember if it was the red pill or the blue pill, but maybe we should just not take the, the, the pill that he actually took and be happy with the other one. Um, Paul Walker talked about that a little bit at the Mockingbird Conference, and I don't run a new year for that. Um, when he, he said that as that all of that is, is kind of consumed in the resurrection, and that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then 
you will always be only as good as the last good thing you did. You know, you'll only be, you know, if you're, you know, we talk about sports, if you're a coach, you'll only be as good as the last game you won or the last conference championship or the last national championship or the last Final Four. The last you know, promotion. The last promotion, the last, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's one thing to be, you know, like I said, there, there's a way, and I mean, Luther gets in this, there's a whole Lutheran theology of vocation, which I know has been talked about here before, and I'm not real well versed in it, probably should be where there's a way you work out your work as it relates to, to Christ and, and derive meaning in that way. Um, but that, that um, apart from that, I, mean, I, think, I think Paul Walker's point was really great in that, you know, a really you know, set apart from, from the, the resurrection, that's, that's all, we're, all we've got going for us. Um, incidentally, because the resurrection is true, if, we, if our hope is in that, you know, we're freed up to work hard in the right way and perhaps be immense, perhaps, no guarantees, perhaps be immensely successful, but in, at the same time not, not derive our significance from that, um, which is, I think, counterintuitive. And as far as how you put that into practice, I don't know, because I'm not very good at that. I think it makes all the sense in the world, though. Um, and I think you can find examples of, of where that where that works. Um, one quick passage from an old Paul's All sermon, long before he ever came to the Advent, from 1980, well, 1997, so never mind, he was at the Advent, but he preached it in England, so maybe he didn't preach it here. Real quick, there is one risky question. It is this question, how can I be justified? This question has been put by persons as diverse as St. Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century, Thomas Cramner in the 16th, and within a wholly different universe, Sam Peckinpah, the film director, in our own time. Peckinpah, by the way, said that the single question he pondered day and night his entire life was, how can I go down to my house justified? We can paraphrase the question in a more contemporary way. How can my personal existence amount to anything that endures? How can I be legitimized? How can I be recognized, evaluated, valued? in such a way that my life will add up to something. To put negatively, what prevents my life from being judged a failure? What is able to defend my life from the charge of mismanagement, mis misuse, abuse, the things done and the things left undone? What will prevent me, on the basis of the life I've lived, from being found wanting, from being regarded as a failure in comparison to someone else, from being left out and judged unworthy of praise? How can I find justification, or how can I defeat accusation? Two sides of the same question. Um, and so to go back to Paul, all of his stuff that he mentions in the first chapter, the, uh, the first of that chapter, um, his, his little resume that he gives you there in Philippians 3, all of that was an attempt at justification. And that when he finds that he is justified in Christ, and this, this is where you cross-reference, and you'd go back to Romans where he explains justification brilliantly in the first eight chapters. And I'll, I'll probably pick up on that next week. Um, when he finds that he's actually justified in Christ, he has to look back on the resume and say, well, if it wasn't worthless before, it's certainly worthless now. I mean, he, and and he, he's able to look at that, you know, like, like you look at a diamond from several, ang several angles, he's going to be able to look back and say, that, that was going to run out of steam, and it wasn't going to bring me success, and it wasn't going to bring me fulfillment, and it wasn't going to 
protect me from those accusations of misuse and abuse and, and, and that just beautiful phrase in the liturgy of the things done and left undone. That wasn't going to happen. But in Christ, who's the author and perfecter and finisher of my faith, in that, in him, in his death, his life, death, and resurrection, I am completely justified before God and the scales are completely are completely even. There is no more imbalance. There's no more like, well, today, a little bit, tomorrow it's better, next week's going to be worse. It is completely, you know, it is finished, uh, set on Good Friday. That, that is forever, that question is forever settled. Um, and so that's, that's Paul's, not, not Paul Walker, Paul's all, but St. Paul, that is his final word, that um, he counts those things as loss. All the credits he'd been building up, you know, he shows up to the store to use his credits and he finds that the account has already been paid. And he, he has to just, you know, all those gift cards he's been saving up are worthless now. He can't spend them. Um, and so in the first instance, when we talk in terms of you know, sin, we're, we, we look there. But when we talk about justification in terms of all these other things, the, the sin angle and the forgiveness angle, um, which I think is ultimately what's going to be satisfying, is that our, our hearts are simply in the wrong place. Um, and... I think what we do, what, what the issue there is, we it never. I don't think it's very helpful to simply say we well, are hearts in the wrong place. I don't think that works very well. But when we see that the failure of work or family or sports fandom is soothed by the gospel, then we can retroactively look back and say, ah, there was the sin, and there is the forgiveness, and there is the peace and the grace and the mercy of God, which covers all things. So. I'll wrap up there um, since I think I'm late over a little bit, and we can go get our kids. And This was great. Thank you all. Father, we do give you thanks for your word, for the, for the truth, the, the comforting truth that uh, the gospel is sufficient to cover all of our missteps and our inadequacies and our sin. And we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.